I want you to imagine how highly would someone have to think of themselves to take this meal of remembrance, this Passover meal that Israel was to observe, not simply this first generation, but every generation therein that entered into the land, were to take this Passover meal and partake as an act of remembrance of the deliverance that Yahweh had committed for His people from bondage in Egypt. How highly would they have to think, how highly would this man have to think to look into the eyes of other Jewish men and say, this Passover meal that we've been observing for centuries, now you will do this in remembrance of me, of my broken body, of my poured out blood. You will do this in the new covenant until I come. How arrogant would someone have to be to make that claim, to reinstitute what the Lord gives us here in Exodus chapter 12 and 13? Or how accurate? That's the question before every one of us this morning. Is, does Jesus actually have authority in Himself to take what the Lord Yahweh clearly gives to Israel and to reinstitute it now in the new covenant made in His blood. Do you believe Jesus has that authority or not? And to those that know Christ, there comes peace and joy because He's the one we've invested in. He's the one we've entrusted ourselves to. By grace through faith in Christ, we rest. We've entrusted our sin to Him, our guilt, our past, our shame, we've entrusted to Jesus. And so we look and say, indeed, He is the one in whom all authority has been given. He's fully God and fully man. He indeed has the authority to do this because He has done all that the Father had given Him to do. All authority has been given unto Him. But to those that don't yet know Jesus, I want to ask you to consider that question this morning as we note three observations, three similarities between the Lord's Supper that we observe of as a church body and Christians all around the world. We as a church at Grace Bible, we do this in the last Sunday of every month. But as we do so, I want you, if you don't yet know Christ, if you've not turned from sin and placed your faith in Jesus alone, if you've not done so yet, I want to ask you the question, do you think that Jesus would have the authority to take what the Lord has established for Israel and to reinstitute it in the new covenant made in His blood? So, let's begin. And next week in chapter 13, we'll make sim- many of these similar observations uh, that we won't have time, I should say, to pull out today. Because chapter 13, we'll see the deed is done. The deed is done. So let's look first as we make note three observations of similarities between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. First, we note that the Passover, now the Lord's Supper, it nourishes His people's faith. It nourishes us. It fortifies our faith as it was prophesied before the act of deliverance ever took place. So I want to read for us as a reminder what our elder Ralph just read for us in verses 27 and 28. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over. The Lord institutes the Passover before they've ever been delivered. Did you note that? When we think of a memorial service, 
Right? Our bodies are aging and decaying and die. And we have memorial services, celebration of life services, funerals, and we remember the one that has passed, right? We don't do that before they've passed. That would be peculiar and strange. But after they've passed, after the event has happened, we celebrate things. You celebrate sports teams, celebrate championships. As a matter of fact, if, if you begin to celebrate a championship that hadn't yet happened yet, you're just waiting for it to blow up in their face, right? Any Astros fans here today? I don't know. That's the... Grumbling, yeah. grumbling in fear, okay. Uh, anxious point, sorry about that, big mistake. But the Lord establishes the Passover meal for Israel, what they're to do, and also gives them details of what they're going to tell their grandkids and their kids once they get into the promised land. They're still enslaved at this point. But as we've seen with every single plague, how has it ended? Just as the Lord said it would. Just as the Lord said. Just as the Lord said. Would you say that with me? Just as the Lord said. And now for the tenth time, instead of Moses, his faith being fortified by what's about to happen, now the buck has been passed on to all of Israel again. Now it's already happened with... Go knock on your neighbor's doors, the Egyptians, and ask for their personal precious jewelry of gold and silver, and they'll give it to you. That took faith by Israel to do that, right? But now they're told you're going to go and, and partake of the meal in all of this way tonight. For your delivery is tomorrow. It's going to take faith throughout all of Israel what's going to happen. And not just faith that is, I hope it works out, but a faith that... If they don't partake, they're told that the Lord will not pass over their home. You see, the event happened and is given to be instituted before it took place. It took faith. And faith that was going to happen this very night. There was a shot clock on the time to respond by faith or not to respond. The reality is, is that that time was set before the foundations of the world in which the Lord would pass over. And all of Egypt and all of Israel for the first time is on the complete same judgment plane. Meaning this, we've seen with the frogs that the frogs went and only came into the house of the Egyptians. We've seen that the hailstone, that was similar, the hailstones fall and Israel's told to take refuge. And they do. But now all of Israel and all of Egypt is on the exact same judgment line. How do they measure up? Everyone comes short of the holy standard of God. Every Israelite household, every Egyptian household will be judged guilty. And the firstborn in every Egyptian home, in every Israelite home, will be killed. Because the Israelites don't measure up to the holiness of God, and neither do the Egyptians. But the Lord provided sacrifice. that they were to slaughter before it would take place. The giving of life of a young lamb, a one-year-old lamb or one-year-old goat. The animal would be killed. All of Israel and all of Egypt come short of the standard of the loving and holy and just God. 
just as every one of us in this room and outside of this room comes short of the standard of the holiness of God. And the Lord gives this command for a memorial for that which has not yet occurred. What I want you to do with that in your mind, I want you to flip over to Mark chapter 12. Or Mark chapter 14, excuse me. Because in Mark chapter 14... Even though just as we saw in the the Passover, Israel had not yet been freed. The Lord in His judgment had not yet passed over the homes. You see, He will pass over the destroyer, the Lord says, will pass over the home of the Israelite because of the blood of the Lamb that will be shed and cover the house. That event had not yet happened yet, the shedding of blood. Now look what Jesus says. Every gospel account does this. If you're a note-writing person, you probably have cross-references if you're in Mark chapter 14. We'll look at verse 22 through 25. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, they most certainly have the cross-references to the other gospel accounts. If you don't have them, let me give them to you so you can write those down, though, if you're interested. So when we come to the gospels, we see uh, all of the four writers give an account of this Passover scene that happens in the Last Supper. We have it here in Mark 14, we have it in John 13, we have it in Matthew 26, and we have it in Luke 22. Mark 14, John 13, Matthew 26, Luke 22, and bingo, right? Now, Mark 14, 22 through 25, listen to what Jesus says in the Passover. This is something that we can easily forget about. This is the night before He's handed over. Before that event takes place, look what it says. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it and broke it. And He gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And He took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, one of the great tie-ins of why we can say with great confidence that this account, even though the Passover feast of a week, that this account is happening here with this Passover meal of what we're reading about in Exodus 12 is because common Jewish meals, they would eat the bread at the beginning, break the bread. This happens, we're told here in Mark, it happens during the meal. It's a special event. It's a part of the ceremony. It's a part of the Passover meal. Jesus is reinstituting it about Him. Think about that. Imagine that you're a Jewish man that has been partaking of the Passover meal every year of your entire life. Say you're in your 40s now. And you've been following Jesus for three years. You've looked at His life as intently as a child looks at the life of their parent. You look for every fault, every idle word, and yet you find none in this man. You watched as he interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and he confounded them at every interaction. You watched with your own eyes as this man did miracles, unexplainable. The only explanation that the authorities could give is that he did them in the power of Satan. And now you sit here observing the Passover, and Jesus takes of the bread. And he breaks it and says, you'll do this now in remembrance of my broken body. You're looking at this man holding the bread. His body has not yet been broken. You'll take of the wine and he partakes 
He says, you'll do this now in remembrance of my blood shed of the new covenant. Who do you believe Jesus is? Just as we read in every single plague, it happened just as the Lord said it would. So too, it happens what? Just as Jesus said it would. Who do you entrust your life to? Through every one of the plagues, we've seen now that Jesus has authority over the physical elements, over the elements of the air, over light and darkness in the last, the ninth plague. And now we see that Jesus has authority over life and death, that the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has all authority, but he also has full authority over all of time. Isn't he worthy to entrust your life to? For the believer, we're warmed at that reality. To the unbeliever, I pray that you're stirred to faith in the Son of God, the one sent by the Father, eternally begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, lived a sinless and righteous life. This leads us into the second component of the similarities we see between the Passover and the Lord's Supper this morning, is that the Passover and now the Lord's Supper is a powerful reminder for the people of God. It's a reminder first of exactly how costly our sin is. Tell me of the quality of the sacrifice that's demanded here in Exodus 12. What type of sacrifice could Israel come up with? The standards are uncompromising. It needed to be a lamb that was without blemish, a young goat, a young lamb, a year old, which would look like a full-grown animal. But it was one without blemish. It couldn't be just with a little blemish. It couldn't be almost pure. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the blood that was shed and the trust and the faith that the Israelite would have is in the Word of God and in God's faithfulness to keep His Word. And the quality of these things is a reminder to the Israelite as they're taking this innocent lamb and sacrificing it and killing it. And the head of the household doing these things all through Israel, all through Egypt as the Israelite households would be a reminder of, listen, what? How costly our sin is. Does this this seem extreme to you? And what we're going to note through the rest of Exodus, and if you continue reading in the Pentateuch and you read in Leviticus, you read in Deuteronomy, this reminder is the people forget and the Lord gives the second giving of the law, the reminder to Deuteronomy 16. It's a great reference to write down. You probably have that as a cross-reference in your Bible. But it's this reminder of what these things are going to represent. It's how costly our sin is. That they take the blood and they pour it on the post. They touch it onto the post with the hyssop branch, this ceremony here. I mean, doesn't that sound extreme? And as we continue going through Exodus, if you think this sounds detail-oriented, wait till we get to the tabernacle. And if that sounds detail-oriented, wait till we get to the temple. And if that sounds detail-oriented, wait till you get to the genealogies in the Gospel that go into incredible detail to point out who Jesus is. The one that the Greek says tabernacled among us. Our sin is that costly. The death of the firstborn in the home of the Israelites 
would occur if not covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's good news. Why a perfect sacrifice? Because these things look forward to Jesus who is to come. Now, what we see in the mind of God is good Bible students, as we want to try to, God, help me understand your word. We ask the Lord to help to instruct us. And, and as good Bible students, if the New Testament gives insight to the Old Testament text, we, we look at the New Testament, how the New Testament handles the Old Testament text. Now, if you were a part of the marriage seminar, you heard a part of that as Pastor Roman began that conference. I want to thank Pastor Stephen for getting that rendered and edited for us. And that, that's all posted on, on YouTube. You can check that out if you missed that. You can see those four different sessions and a Q&A that we had in that. But as Romans set the stage, he went through Ephesians chapter 5. And we won't flip there, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes this mystery of marriage that God created, husband and wife. This committal relationship that Go with me now, think chronologically. The book of Genesis over here, creation of Adam and creation of Eve from Adam as he created Adam from the dust of the earth, breathed life into him, and then formed Eve from the side of Adam. That happens before Paul, right? Help me out here. Of course. But what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is that that creation event of Adam and Eve, humans in the ordinance and creation of marriage, the gift this Lord gives, he says it actually depicts the mystery of God. And in the mind of God, it was to depict Christ Jesus who lays His life down for the, His bride, the church. And we look at that and we think, how could, that's all in the mind of God who's perfect and all-knowing. Now, we'll, we'll all, I don't know if you're like me, but I'll mess something up and I'll try to play it off at the end like, yeah, 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 no, that's what I meant to do. That's not what the Lord does here in the text. From the very beginning, he has in the, his, the, the perfect, ungrowing, perfect mind and knowledge and attributes. Marriage, at the very beginning of creation, that image is Christ laying down his life for the bride, the church, and the bride submitting to the groom and abiding in him. And here in the sacrifice of the quality of the lamb, that too, listen, is a foreshadowing of this quality of the sacrifice and the life that Jesus would live and the blood that He would shed. So when John the Baptist looks at Jesus, who's coming toward Him into Jordan, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. Do you know Him? see the Passover minded Israel and testified to Israel of how costly their sin is. None of us in this room and outside this room measure up. So many people wrongly think that going to church or being a Christian is about being a good or better person. What kind of sacrifice can you be on your own? Not a holy one. Not a pure one without blemish. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the giving and the shedding of life of the blood of the goats and of the sheep foreshadow the one who was to come. There is not atoning power even in the lifeblood of the sheep, but in God's kindness that He would permit this, that as He would pass over in judgment from the house, every firstborn in Israel and in Egypt is judged guilty. They will pay the consequence. 
But all the entirety of the sacrifice will be eaten by the family, identifying with the costliness of their sin and a trust, listen, in the faithful God. What we see modeled in this is that even a shaky, hesitant faith in the perfect, faithful, righteous, and holy God is greater than a perfect faith in a fallen self. If you're this morning here on fumes and you're a believer in Christ and you're just wrestling, just saying, I don't even know how I got here this morning. Rest assured this morning that you've placed your faith in the blood of the Lamb that was spilled for you once and for all. He died for your doubts and your shames and your guilts and your sin. You have a pure and righteous judge. A lamb who, as John says in Revelation 5, though slain is standing. A lamb who intercedes for us. A God who loves us. Are you covered in the blood of the lamb of the new covenant? See, the Passover and the Lord's Supper reminds us, when we observe the Lord's Supper as a church body, as we will in just a little bit, we're reminded that none of us come to the table by our resume but we come and have confidence because of what Christ has accomplished. Amen? He's our hope and the good news that we have. That's the proclamation that we have is indeed how serious and sinful and broken we are. And yet in this, that all who take refuge in Him will be delivered. There's a reminder for Israel, a proclamation to the nations. He says, the sojourner and the foreigner that are among you, see that you've taken refuge in the covenant faithful God. It was a proclamation that all of Egypt and all of Israel, though equally judged and damned guilty before a just and holy God, if they will but believe and trust in His work and way, the judgment of God will pass over. That all who take right will be delivered. Listen to verse 13 and 14 as again as a reminder. It says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, the Lord says, Yahweh says, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. It's a reminder that they were taking refuge and delivered from what? Look down to verse 8. What type of herbs were they to have? What was it seasoned in? Sweet? What kind of herbs? Let's say it together. Bitter. Bitter herbs would be a reminder of the bitterness. Deuteronomy 16.3 tells us. Bitter herbs are a reminder of the bitterness of their life enslaved in Egypt. Every year it would be a reminder and a proclamation. Our memories are kind of funny, aren't they? Sometimes we call them the good old days. Don't you just miss the good old days? I laugh all the time when I hear adults say, don't you just miss back when we were in like high school and how good life was in middle school? I'm like, did you really think you thought that back in high school and middle school? Come on, right? I, I think it's great. I, this, the beauty of being a multi-generational church is we can see the com- consistent components of self-deception, 
All right, I'll never forget the time that Sarah was old and brought one of our babies to church. And she was, I mean, she got so little sleep. And uh, just leave it at that. So she was just so tired. I remember somebody came up to her, so sweet, but she's like, these are the good days. <laughs> like, she was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, this is peak? As a new mom and getting zero sleep, this is peak? And we forget some of the bitter seasons of life as we age, don't we? And what Israel will do as we work through the book of Exodus, we'll see that, that when they get on the other side of the Red Sea, it won't even take two months before they long for the bitter days back in Egypt. And the believer in Christ, we can so easily find ourselves longing for the bitter days enslaved in sin. And what God in His kindness does in the Passover is even in the act of the Passover feast, He gives them a reminder, a generational, yearly, annual reminder. And this event becomes the first month, we're told, of Israel's liturgical calendar that orients them. And part of that is a reminder of the bitterness and fallenness of their life enslaved. It reminds them that God is indeed a redeemer and a deliverer, but the bitterness that He has delivered them from. And part of the purpose of the bride of Christ in the local church is to ever remind ourselves of the false promises of pursuing the pursuits of this life. Christ is better than all of those things. His mission and His purpose of being and making disciples is a better purpose. Israel's purpose to rest in the promises of God and partaking of this Passover meal to serve Him and to worship Him is greater than all the things that they could have ever done beforehand, even though their needs were largely met in Egypt. They were not living the mission that God had for them. So, they're reminded that all who take refuge in them, in Him, Jew and Gentile alike, will be spared. That's the greatness and the kindness of God. And the decision for that was today, on this day, on this day, on this night, that begins. What about you? If you've been putting off a commitment to the Lord and trusting yourself to Him, what if this night your soul is required of you? What if this night your soul is required of you? Will you have a restful evening? Will you have calm and peace in your heart tonight as you eat dinner? Or you'll be anxious knowing that you are not a pure sacrifice. And if you will today but admit to God your sin and brokenness and need for Him, your belief in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sinless, God's love for you. Turning and trusting in what He did upon the cross. Believing that He rose from the grave. And committing your life to Him. For forgiveness and to follow Him wherever He should lead you. You will have peace beyond understanding. That's a reminder that we have in the Lord's Supper. Amen. This leads us third and finally in verses 15 through 28, as I summarize it this way, that the Passover and now the Lord's Supper is a testimony 
to both those outside the people of God and to those coming up under our care until He comes. There's a testimony in the Passover. We see that in these words. We'll talk about this in more detail next week, by the way. So we won't spend too much time on it, but I want to look first. Again, there's a multifaceted testimony. There's a testimony that goes out to the sides of the, those that are not yet in the covenant, but are among them in verse 15 and 19. But there's also a generational testimony to the younger generations that are watching. Verse 15, that person shall be cut off from Israel, the person that doesn't abide by these things, that eats the leavened bread. Verse 15 again says, the seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Look down to verse 19. You see it again. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, how were they to do so? They're, they did it because of faith. They were living in a peculiar way as a testimony of what was to come. And then even in the memorial, even though they've already delivered, all of the people were to partake in this way. And what we're told very soon is that when they leave, we'll look at this next week, when they leave, a number of the Egyptians and perhaps other people, other nations that were enslaved there will leave with Israel. An untold number of them will leave with Israel. And so that's the number of the group we'd presume this is originally talking about. Those not originally in the covenant of Abraham, they'll come, but they, they'll just kind of partake and they'll kind of sit and they'll kind of watch. And what he says is they shall be cut off. And what we have in the Hebrew is an interpretive issue here. Because it can go really one of two ways. Now, every English translation chooses to go they shall be cut off, which is saying that God will cut them off. God will prune them from your midst. Those that don't observe in the way that God calls them to observe the Passover. But the other way that it can be interpreted, the NIV, if you have an NIV translation in front of it, you're the only one that has this, that says it this way in the English. And they take it in as a command, you shall cut them off. Israel, you're to disfellowship these people. You're cutting them out of fellowship from Israel. They're not in the covenant. They're not abiding. Cut them off. I think it could be a both-and type situation as well. Certainly possible. But what we have today in the life of the church and how the Lord works this, we would call that word church discipline. So must be a shall be or you ought to be. You should do these things. The Scripture gives us multitudes of warning of church discipline. I want to speak on them for a moment. And you actually heard it with what Joe said at the beginning. You have one example. The Lord charges in His churches and in the Scriptures that God that churches are to call pastors and elders. There's qualifications by which they're to live their lives. And a part of that is guarding the church. They guard the elements of the Lord's Supper and the elements of baptism. But they're also to guard the purity of the church. And so when those, uh, we, we encourage you, we encourage everyone, come, you know, just commit yourself to membership to the church. Meaning, come see what the church believes. Look at the history, understand the philosophy of ministry. We're not saying that nobody that's, anybody that's not a church member is not a believer. That's not how we practice church discipline or, church di discipline or membership. But listen, here's the case. You, you charge us 
you charge the elders to give oversight and care to the congregation. And part of that is to, as we meet, is to say, do you understand the gospel? And you would not believe just in reality how many people grow up in church but have no idea what the gospel message is. God, man, Christ responds. They think just, I've always been going to church. I'm, just, I'm a good person. I think, I just try to be good. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I just try to be a good person. And because I'm a good person, I think I'm forgiven. There's no confidence in that. I'm not a good person. I'm keep me up way late at night. And so part of the charge as we meet with members is to go through and share our testimony and also listen for testimony. Do you understand the gospel? And if they don't, to make sure the gospel is clear and that they do know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to call them to give their life to Jesus. That's a charge that you give to the elders and the pastors of, of the church. But second, with the Lord's Supper, that there is a discipline issue with this. And our ladies are going through right now, Kim Weir's done a great job, our, our ladies have been teaching through that Corinthian series. And what you see in First and Second Corinthians is this purity church issue. And part of that is with the Lord's Supper. And so when we say of the Lord's Supper as a church, we believe that indeed this is a memorial. We do this as an act of remembrance of Christ, but you won't typically hear us say it's merely symbolic. It is symbolic, right? As Jesus is taking the bread, he says, do this now. That wasn't literally his body, wasn't literally his blood yet. But there is a faith-building component that this gift that the Lord gives to the church. And the book of Acts is an example. We have an Ananias and Sapphira that disobey the Lord and the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. And in Corinth, as we read through those letters, there is so much dysfunction through the life of the church that you have also people that are staying there, it seems, all day when people are able to gather. They didn't quite have watches like us, but also you had a number of the early church were slaves. And so they were coming at different times. But you had some people that were hanging out all day and were getting drunk on communion. And that was just a number of the abuses. And what God says in His Word, listen, is, and that's why a number of you are getting sick and even dying. That's not an easy text to deal with, but I think what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit is, if you're going to so dishonor the Lord, I'm going to go ahead and kill you. And part of the charge that the Lord, that we have, that you give to the elders to say we ought to, it's called fence the table in a way that whenever the Lord's Supper is given, it should be given with a sense of honesty and and a warning. Say, if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Christ yet, don't partake. But what if the person around me is partaking? Don't partake. There's also a purifying element of the fellowship of the local church. If you've got offense with another brother or sister in Christ in our church, don't partake today. But seek reconciliation in that relationship. So there's a purifying relational component. And in Matthew chapter 18, the church is given this larger discipline instruction. To say, if one confesses faith in Christ and yet they do not follow in this way and they're, and they're showed an account for their sin, say they're in an unfaithful relationship, okay? Just leave it at that. It's a family service. And they don't come to repentance even though they're a professing believer. One time by the one that was offended and another time in the church and all these things. Their elders, the church is to cast them out to treat them as an unbeliever. And what does that mean? It means we throw sticks and rocks at them, right? No, it's not it at all. Some of you are just waking up. Kids, I'm not teaching you to throw sticks or rocks at your unbelieving neighbor. That's not what I'm teaching. Well, how do we treat an unbeliever? We love them. And we serve them. And we call them to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
We don't just treat them like they're believers. Because their fruit of their life would show such a hardness against the Word of God as Pharaoh's heart was so continually hardened that our hope is that that disfellowship would be uncomfortable enough that God may use it to jar them and to either come to saving faith or to come to repentance and restoration into the life of the church. And Corinthians are called, give them over to Satan. Meaning, and Scripture calls this, gives them over to the prince of this world, the air. That they might, by grace, number one, may be shaken to come to faith. That they can't just keep playing a game. Number two, that the local church would be purified in its commitment and fellowship. And that's why when Scripture says a little leaven in Galatians, a little leaven seeps through the whole congregation. It's talking about false teaching. A touch of false teaching ends up bleeding in and, and impacting the church at large. But also, impurity of our lifestyles ends up numbing, like a numbing agent into the life of the church. And so, we're to aim to live repentant lives. And that's what church membership is saying. I accept and desire accountability in my life. I want to be held to those standards and I want to hold the rest of the church and most church discipline. You know what it is? It's the friend in the small group that says to the other friend, hey, are you doing all right? Something seems to be going on. And then that friend, the Lord uses that friend who has those eyes to see and begins to pull out, you know what, actually I'm not doing good. And the Lord uses that to bring little restorations in the life of the church. So this is what the Lord's Supper, this is what the Passover did for Israel. It provided a clarity of fellowship to those in the faith and the sojourner that was among them that dishonored the Passover, that did not abide. They were not abiding all the way. We'll see it gets really bloody next week of what that looks like. Glad that's not a family service, that service. Okay, if you've read ahead, you get it. Two people in the church get it. Okay, you're going to read ahead this week in Matthew 13. You're going to be like, I get the joke that Brent just made. All right, let's keep going here. All right, so there's a testimony generation. There's a testimony outwards, and there's a testimony generationally. Look at this, verse 25 and 20, or 24 through 27. We'll look at it. But the idea is that when your kids ask, so every year that you partake of this, you're doing it around your kids, and your kids are watching and they're being provoked to a question. Look what it says. Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. The presumption and the gift of Passover is that it will be a generational testimony of passing on the faith. And that's why on the fifth Sundays, we involve and ask our K through fifth students to stay in church with us. Now, let's be honest. I'm not even going to ask you because I know the answer and you're going to be embarrassed to say it. But parents, this is the hardest Sunday of the year, of the month for you, isn't it? And you might look rashly and say, well, I'm only even listening like 30% to whatever Brent's saying because I'm trying to make sure they're not being loud. But we believe the Scriptures are wiser than we are. Pastor John does an incredible job. Our, our, our Sunday school teachers teach our kids, y'all do an unbelievable job. And educationally, if we're doing a test afterward, they would probably get more answers correct. 
of what was taught on. They're more engaging. They're doing more different things than what we're doing right here. Let's be honest here. But here's the deal. God gave the Passover, and this way we see the Lord's Supper as a generational testimony that will provoke the hearts of the younger generations that can't figure it all out on their own. And kids, part of the beauty of kids, when Jesus says, let the kids come to me, part of the beauty of kids is that when they have a question, do you know what they usually do? They'll ask. Hey, adults, when you have a question, will you ask? No. You'll keep it to yourself until you die, right? Kids will ask. And the assumption is that the kids are watching. And when they ask, you'll be ready to explain it to them. That's how I came to faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper was being partaken. My dad wouldn't let me partake, and I asked him why. He said, let me tell you when we get home. Never underestimate what the Lord will do. And I want to put something ease to your conscience right now. If you are over, say, the grandparent age, I'm not going to put an age on it. If you're grandparent age, when you look around at the little wiggles and the kids around you in service today, you be honest. How many of you, it encourages you and blesses you to see those little kids in service? Did you raise your hand? Raise your hand. Parents, look around. Now, I know that doesn't mean it's any easier. I still know as a parent, you're going to feel like, ah, don't be, be quiet. But you need to understand as your kids making movements and you're feeling like everyone's looking at you, guess what? They totally are probably looking at you. But it's not a bad thing. They're looking at you move to faith. You know, in the life of Grace Bible Church, just a couple decades ago, there were almost no kids at all. And a number of ladies in the church, and then it spread into the life of all the church, began to pray that God would entrust young families to this church to be able to teach and train up in the faith, to teach and entrust the faith to them. You are an answer to those prayers. The Passover served as a testimony, a generational testimony of the faithful Yahweh, the Lord God, who alone is sovereign over all the, all the many gods of the world. There's only one true God who's worthy of our worship in life. So, that's the testimony that's bred into the life of the Passover and therein the Lord's Supper. And all these things lead Israel to hear these words and to do what? They bow their heads and they worship the Lord. That's what we see in the Lord's Supper, church. We bow our heads and we live and we worship the Lord. And then what did it say the very next verse in verse 28, the last verse is? And they went and did what they were called to do. God, man, Christ's response. The Lord has put different things for each of us in this room to do as we leave this room. The Holy Spirit, He indwells us and gives us insights to those things. But the beauty to gather together and remember the Lord's faithfulness. And so what I want to do in our next step is very simple. I've put steps, but really it's one very simple step today. Besides what the Lord's already put on your mind, that God set His love upon His redeemed people and He's gifted them with the, this command to orient their lives around the gathering together. We see in the Sabbath that the Lord, Jesus clarifies, did not make man for Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. Meaning it's good for us to pause one day of the week, to rest and to trust the promises of God and to reorient our life of what the Lord has done for us. That's a good gift for us. And we're not restful in that way. We'll typically experience the consequences months or years down the road, won't we? So it causes us to rest, causes us to re-anchor ourselves as we get so busy trying to be productive, forgetting the Lord, ironically, oftentimes in our lives. 
But he also gave this, as we said, this gift becomes the first month of the Jewish reminder of the year of Passover, that the Lord is a deliverer. He's faithful. Now, there's seven feasts that are given to Israel. You can write down Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, if you want to read those. We don't have time to go over them today. But Leviticus 23, we see four given in the spring, and we see three given in the fall. Three given in the fall, four given in the spring. And what this did for Israel is it made them slow down and it oriented their lives around the works and the promises and the Word of God. The Lord's Supper helps us to slow down and to remember what the Lord has done for us. There's this celebration meal together. And so what I want to do is, is we're going to go to that Corinthian text that I referred to earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're a believer in Christ and in fellowship and good fellowship with the body of Christ, we invite you to this table, the Lord's table. He invites us to these things. If you don't know yet know Christ, that we pray that you would come, become united to Him by faith and next month you would partake with us. Share that with us. Mark that on the Connect card. Let us know. We're called to disciple you and you're called to make disciples. We want to equip you in those things. But the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we are welcome to the table because of what He has accomplished for us. So, let me read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and you can open up first and take the, the bread elements of this. And Paul says, summarizing what Jesus did, this new covenant made in His blood, Paul says to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Aren't you grateful that the blood of lambs and goats that was shed every year in Israel was no longer shed? As believers that we come by faith in Christ, the lamb that was sacrificed once and for all, that we rest in Christ. Isn't that good news to you, tired believer, this morning? Isn't that good news, broken sinner? Adopted and forgiven and redeemed. Resting in Christ. Welcome to His table. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup in the new covenant is My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, it is good to be your people. It is a good reminder to know that we did not demand access to this table, but that you would so love us that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. 
Lord, grace doesn't make sense in our minds. The grace that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, our assurance of pardon, forgiveness of sins. Lord, you know the full depth and gravity of our life, of our sinful ways and our sinful thoughts and the deeds that we are so afraid that anyone in this room might ever come to be aware of them. You know them perfectly. And you set your saving love upon us. That Christ died for them in their entirety. That you don't love us more or less. But we are perfectly loved in Christ. Lord, this week as we live in response to the goodness of your word, would you give us a confidence to proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus, that we would be in this way like Israel, who would tell the next generation of the fact that you are a deliverer to all that are in you. God, give us readiness to pursue others. Give us hardiness, Lord, to train up the next generation, to teach them the faith. And we ask, Holy Spirit, would you bring them to life? Would you give us encouragement? Would you comfort those in our congregation grieving this day? Be with those that are at home and sick or, Lord, homebound, unable to gather with us, Lord. We thank you that you see them and love them. Lord, bring them to our minds this week. Help us to encourage them in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, the assurance of the first fruits of the resurrection. We do love you. We thank you for the chance to sing this song to you again one more time before we go on our day. In Jesus' name, everyone said together. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?